1: And today we're going to be covering 2 Nephi 20 through 25, which is by and large the Isaiah chapters. I mean, 2 Nephi 25 is Nephi summing it up, but 20 through 24 are in Isaiah. And chapter 20 of 2 Nephi is covering the time period of Isaiah's day. Remember, Isaiah lived in the 8th century BC. So, right around 740 BC is when Isaiah is writing these things. And in 721 BC, so in Isaiah's time period, the Assyrian Empire comes down into Israel, and they're grasping Israel by the throat. In my mind's eye, I see Darth Vader holding up by the throat this rebel soldier, and this is really what Assyria is doing. They're choking off the power, the military might of the nations of the ancient world. And we have this march as they descend and come down into Israel. Their march down into Israel starts in 2 Nephi 20, verse 28. And so imagine the fear that you would have if you were King Hezekiah and you were watching these armies or you were getting reports of these armies coming to destroy the people that live in this area where Isaiah lives. Now, Hezekiah looks to Isaiah for direction. At this time, King Hezekiah is the king of Jerusalem. The twelve tribes of Israel are divided into a northern and southern kingdom, and the ten tribes in the north are ruled by a separate king, but Isaiah lives in Jerusalem and we think, in the king's court, and he is associated with Hezekiah. So Hezekiah, once again, is the king of Jerusalem, the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and the northern tribes are led by a coalition of ten tribes. They're led by another king. And those ten tribes, many of them, are taken captive into the lands of Assyria, and this is known today as the scattering of the ten tribes. They become Lost to history. And this is all going to be happening in Isaiah's day. But once again, Isaiah is a prophet in the king's court. And the king is Hezekiah. He is going to look to Isaiah for advice because Isaiah is a prophet. And Isaiah, by speaking to the Lord, is going to be able to communicate to Hezekiah military plans. Hey, this is what we should do. This is how we should handle this threat from the mighty Assyrian army. And then Second Nephi 21 is Isaiah 11, and this is an image of a tree. And even if the tree is cut down, it will grow back. It's an image that Christ will come, that there'll be a stem of Jesse that will come. It's a great message of hope. We see this message of hope extended into chapter 22, which is Isaiah 12. And then we shift a little bit, and we have this message of being true in captivity. That's Isaiah 13 and 14, or 2 Nephi 23 and 24. You see, historically, after the Assyrian Empire falls, another empire rises up, and that is Babylon. And after Isaiah passes away, and in Nephi's day, so about 100 years after Isaiah, the nation of Babylon rises up, and Babylon becomes the next big empire that is ruling and oppressing the nations. And Lehi knows that Babylon will take over Jerusalem. And that's why Lehi wanted to leave Jerusalem. Now just remember that in 721 BC, the 10 tribes are scattered by Assyria. And so after they're scattered, all that's left are a couple tribes in Jerusalem and one of them is the tribe of Judah. And that's what's there when Lehi is there. And Isaiah sees in the future that Babylon will take over. And because of this, he offers a message of hope to the Jews that live there to stay true in captivity and to know, one of the big messages of Isaiah 13 and 14 is to know that as mighty as the king of Babylon may seem, he will go down. So in 2 Nephi 25, Nephi then pauses and says, hey, this is why I'm using Isaiah, Nephi sees that Isaiah understands the plan. Now, a lot of Isaiah's words are written in political speech of his day. He's talking about the things of his day. But Nephi sees it with new eyes, revelatory eyes, where he sees that this is a message of Christ and the Messiah. And he sees also that the Jews will be scattered and they will be gathered. He sees the big picture, the big story. And to him, the message is this. Once they come to receive Christ and believe in him, everything will be put back. And I love this passage in Second Nephi 25 where Nephi says in verse 17 that the Lord will set his hand again the second time to restore his people from their lost and fallen state wherefore he will proceed to do a marvelous work and a wonder among the children of men. He shall bring forth his words unto them, which words shall judge them at the last day, for they shall be given them for the purpose of convincing them of the true Messiah who was rejected by them. Nephi sees that one day the Jews will be brought to Christ, that the Lord's people will be restored and that they will believe in the Messiah. And Nephi sees this as he reads the words of Isaiah. And that's why he is including them in his record. The words of Isaiah are so important to Nephi. And I think it applies to us to be true even when we're in danger, and that's kind of the Assyrian passages where the Assyrians are coming, and to be true, even when we're in captivity. And those are the Babylonian chapters in 2 Nephi 23 and 24. And so wherever we are in this world, we can be faithful. We can be faithful if we're under threat, or we can be faithful if we're in captivity. The message is the same. Stay true, and eventually all things will be made right. So that's a brief overview of these chapters. So with that, let's go back to chapter 20 and talk about the political things happening there. It's Hezekiah's stand, if you just want to put a title to those things. If you want to search it, it's Hezekiah's stand. And essentially what happens is they're just surrounded. Hezekiah is told by the public information officer of the Assyrians, he comes up on a ladder and he stands and he says, if you guys let us in, we're going to promise you'll live. But if you don't, if you make us lay siege to your walls around your city. We are going to wreck you. And politically, everybody was wrecked. And he's done that. They've wrecked so many other people. They're on their way to Egypt. This
0: is just a small little bug on the way to conquering Egypt. And look at all the people we've already conquered, and you're next. And there's no way you're going to fare any better than they
1: did. It's a massive taunt. And Hezekiah doesn't know what to do. He's the king. And so he goes to Isaiah, what should I do? And Isaiah prays and the Lord says, you know what? Uh, We are going to be okay. Be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt for a little while and the indignation shall cease. That's uh, 2 Nephi 20, verse 24 and 25. So it's going to be okay. Um, Historically, there's this uh, document called Sennacherib's Prism. I'll post that in the show notes. But essentially, the story from the Bible is that the Assyrians get wrecked. They wake up the next morning, and they're dead. The armies are dead. Sennacherib goes back to his capital city, and his own sons kill him. And all this is recorded in 2 Kings. And the author of 2 Kings says it's because they listened to the prophet, and they listened to Hezekiah. And clearly, I mean, I can imagine the fear that Hezekiah must have felt when he heard the Assyrians say, hey, let us in, and we'll let you live. It really reminds me historically, I'm going to geek out on World War II a little bit, where Adolf Hitler said, hey, to Winston Churchill, if you let uh, our Air Force land, we promise you guys you're going to be okay. Just let the Luftwaffe, I hope I said that right, land in, in uh, Great Britain, and it'll be okay. And there's a beautiful speech by Winston Churchill, and I can never remember it, but he says essentially, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them in the water, we'll fight them behind churches. we will And it's a beautiful speech by Winston Churchill where he's like, no, you're not coming here. If we're the last free people on earth till the last British guy is standing, we are not going to let the Nazis win. And I just love that. And I love it as a type, Bryce. Well, how do you apply it? Well,
0: not only just in Isaiah, but even in Second Kings, Hezekiah goes into the temple and he lays the letter on the altar and he basically says, Lord, he can do everything he just threatened. He can do all those things. But if you're with me, we can stand. And I just, I think the application here is the world is coming at you and the world is overwhelming and they can do everything that they've threatened. But with the Lord's help, we can take a stand, stand for right, stand for truth, stand for virtue. Back in Revelation, we saw that the beast wants to put a mark in your forehead. And if you don't have the mark in your forehead, you can't play in their playground, And we live in this society that just does that. If you don't put the mark in your forehead, you can't play in their sandbox. And so it's so tempting to just give in and do what the world does. And the Lord says, don't. And the whole idea here is take a stand, stand for what's right. And just, I won't, I won't. They're bigger, they're stronger, they're meaner, they're more powerful. I'm outnumbered, but I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to take a stand for what's right. It's the young person who says, I will not use foul language, even though everyone else is doing so, and they mock me for not doing so. I will not drink and smoke. I will not give up the standards of the church in spite of so many people who want to destroy me, and they can. Socially, they can. But Lord, with you, if you're going to help me, I can take a stand. And and he always wins. There may be battles. We may lose a few things. But when you stand with Jesus, you're always going to win. Yeah.
1: There's a few really cool passages in the Book of Mormon, because I think that the authors use this to give him strength. So I'm going to throw a couple out there. Jacob takes a stand. There's a couple times where Jacob says, hey, this isn't right. What's going on? So we'll do that when we get to Jacob 2. To me, the war chapters are interesting. Chapters 43 through 62, there's times when the Lord says, take a stand. There's other times when the Lord says, you know what, you guys need to go. It's time for you to leave. Nephi does it, right? There's just times when you when you leave and times when you go, and I think a big way we can know the difference is to listen to the Spirit. And during the war chapters, the Lord will
0: say to Captain Moroni that he will prosper you according to the circumstances you're in. So if you're if if the Lord is with you, you'll know how to respond. Yeah. Sometimes you run, sometimes you take a stand. Yeah,
1: and I love the chapters in there with the Gadiantans, the letter that they send where they say, "Hey, ally with us, and we'll or, be we'll, allies." And they're like, "Nope, we're not going to do third it." Third Nephi two, three, four, yeah, good stuff. And then finally, this isn't a Book of Mormon one, but I just love this. It's Joseph Smith History one twenty five, where Joseph says about the vision, he's like, "I knew it." And I knew that God God knew it. And I could not deny
0: it. So that's beautiful. And that's that idea is no matter how powerful the world may be, no matter how threatening they may appear, you stand with God and you have more behind you than the threat in front of you. Let me throw one more in there. One of my favorite scenes is in uh, the Old Testament with the prophet Elisha. They're at war with Syria, and the Syrians are always saying, Elisha is always telling them how to be prepared for war. And so the king of Syria concludes that he's got a mole. And they said, no, you don't have a mole. It's just that Israel has a prophet. So he sends his entire army to take out Elisha the prophet. Let's take out the prophet, and then we can win this war. And so he, the, Elisha's servant wakes up one day and he's completely surrounded by the entire army. And he says, alas, my master, how shall we fare? I just picture this as a young man looking out at the army that opposes them. It's like, Lord, there's no way. What can we possibly do? And Elisha says to the young man, fear not, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And I just love to, I, I just picture in my mind's eye the servant looking at Elisha saying, One, two, you and me, and you're old, so you don't even count. And then he looks at the army saying, there's thousands out there. How can you possibly say that? And seeing the fear in his eyes, Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord opens the servant's eyes, and he sees that the mountain was full of chariots of fire. And it's the same thing for you and I, brothers and sisters. If we could see the power standing behind us, we wouldn't be afraid of the forces in front of us no matter how scary they may be, no matter how formidable it may be. Um, I was talking to a young man who's absolutely terrified to go on a mission. Anxiety, homesickness, lack of the ability to learn a language, all of those are the forces facing him. He just needs to understand the power that's behind him. And when he does that, when he takes a stand against fear, against anxiety, against homesickness, when he takes a stand with Jesus and says, Lord, if you'll be with me, I can win this battle. I can do it.
1: And we can. We can. We can win the battle. Yeah. In the 21st chapter, look at verse one there They'll come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So wait, I thought we were talking about branches or roots or what what's going on. So verse 2, we're obviously talking about a person. So Joseph asks the question, you know, what's going on here? So in verse 1 of section 113, he says, "Who's the stem of Jesse?" And the answer verse 2 is it's Christ. And so the image I want you to have in your mind is a stump. And the Lord says, "Yeah, that's Jesus." And, you know, how is Jesus like a tree that's been cut down? And I think it's a good thing to think about, well, he was killed. And so in verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and shall make him quick of understanding. Well, what's going on in verse 2 and 3 and 4? Joseph asks. He says, well, Who is this person? Verse 3 of section 113, he says, Well, what's this rod that's coming out? Of the stump, what is this? So the word is "coter." That's the word used for a rod, and it's a new tree. It's a branch coming out. It's a, it's a shoot coming out of of the stump, and the Lord says in verse four of section one hundred thirteen, He says it's a servant in the hands of Christ, who's a descendant of Jesse as well as of Ephraim or of the house of Joseph, on whom there is laid much power. So it's a servant. I think a good type for this would be the prophet Joseph, Joseph Smith, as this servant. I think also typologically this could fit anybody who says, here am I, send me. Anybody who will go and serve. I really want to give a plug for what Bryce said about you got to see it. And so I'll post the picture of a stump. And that's what the stem of Jesse is. There's this stump and there's this little branch growing up out of the stump and it's going to grow into a tree. And so what happens in verse 3, 4, and 5 of Isaiah 11 is we're going to make this servant quick of understanding, and the Lord's going to anoint them with his spirit. And notice how they're anointed with the spirit. It says, he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove the equity of the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall say the wicked and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and the faithfulness, the girdle of his reins. So this individual, whether it be Joseph, whether it be anyone who's made these covenants will be blessed with the spirit, their eyes, their ears, their mouth, their lips, their loins. They will be, and by the way, that's kingly language in first temple Judaism, first temple Israelite religion, the king was anointed that he would do these things that he would reprove and he would have judgment and he would speak truth and he would be chaste and that his lips would do the things that kings do. And so this is millennial, clearly. It's kingly, but it's gathering. So if you look in verse six, now we're shifting to millennium. Well, how does this happen? You don't have a millennial people, verse six, seven, eight, and nine, if you don't have people like verse two, three, four, and five. Those are, to me, that's Exodus 19, 4, 5, and 6, where the Lord says, I want a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And to get them there, they've got to be anointed with the Spirit and they've got to be like me. And so, if they're like me, then we have this garden, we have this beautiful place. And so, this is all happening in the first temple. And so, Nephi gets this stuff. Nephi's seen this. Imagine if your whole life, you and your grandparents have seen this temple drama. This stuff is not foreign to you. But I think we read it sometimes, and it's just so foreign to our culture. Um, go to verse 10. There shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign to the people, and to it the Gentiles shall seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Sheresh the root. There's so many derivations of this word. It's about being tied in. Another word that's close to it is a word that means chain. We're linking ourselves back to God. And why do we need this? Why do we need this root? Verse eleven. We're going to get gathered back. Verse twelve. We're going to. There's a banner. This. By the way, this is a a battle with a king. The king's at the front, and we're going to set up the ensign to the nations, and we're going to gather the outcasts of Israel. Verse fifteen. We're going to destroy the tongue of the Egyptian. I don't read this literally. I don't believe we're going to war against Egypt, but Egypt is a symbol for the world, and we're being gathered. By what kind of people? Verse 2 through 5. People who've been anointed by the Spirit to introduce a millennial reign that we're seeking after Jesus, and it's this war cry. And so big picture, that's kind of what I see happening in the 21st chapter And I grew up in, uh, I spent many of my years in Northern California in, in a place called Eureka. And there were trees there that were redwoods. You can literally see these trees that are growing out of these stumps. These trees that have been cut down a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, some of them, and whole new trees growing up. And to me, I see that as Isaiah is trying to give a message of hope to these people. Like, I know you're going to get wrecked. I know you're going to lose the temple, but the Lord hasn't forgotten you. And Bryce, that's big picture. What I see the Book of Mormon is the Book of Mormon is like, I haven't forgotten you guys. It's very much second coming. It's very much Latter-day Saints. It's to give
0: hope to the Latter-day Saints who are coming out of an apostate world and out of the apostasy to say, look, you are growing out of a dead tree you are a branch that comes out of this dead tree and you're going to get stronger and stronger and pretty soon you will be the new tree that gathers everyone else and so you latter-day saints you hang in there there is purpose you've been sent to earth at this time to do something divine we're coming out of the apostasy and it's going to happen we're a new tree growing out of
1: a dead one to me the isaiah stuff is the book of mormon I think what the Book of Mormon's doing is it's taking Isaiah and it's repackaging it to these people that lived in the Americas, and it's come forth to us because every we live in this apostate time. It's just beautiful, There's and the imagery's awesome. There's a reason Nephi's including it. He saw in his
0: vision the latter days. He saw the struggles that we would have, the rebirth that we're trying to create, and he saw that these chapters of Isaiah would answer that question. You've got to see the connection between Nephi's visions of what happened in the New Testament times, what happened in the Book of Mormon times, and what's going to happen in the latter days, and how Isaiah's message is tailored, made to those who are going through those very things.
1: So, okay, before we get into the true in Captivity, in the fall festival— one of the days was the drawing of the water. And so there's this spring under Jerusalem called the Spring of Gahon, and the high priest would go down and he would get this vessel and get the water from the spring and carry it up to the temple in front of everybody. He would pour it to these two silver containers and he would pour it over the altar. You got to kind of see this in your mind's eye. And as the water trickled all over the altar and down, down, down into the ground, the vision was that God was going to make it rain. God was going to make things fertile. And the message was, it was like this cycle, and the waters from the deep are coming here to the earth, and they're going back. And the way I kind of see this is, I look at this as family. Like we come from somewhere, and it matters. So anyway, if you look right there in verse three, middle of the verse of Second Nephi twenty-two, it says, "With joy shall ye draw the water out of the wells of salvation." And then let's get back to Jesus. He is the the living water. Verse five: Sing unto the Lord. So anyway, cry out and shout. This is all uh, early temple stuff. So 23rd chapter, this chapter and the next chapter is stay true in captivity. They're going to be captive and the Jews are going to be in there for 70 years, captive to the greatest empire ever. Um, at that time, Babylon, uh, incredible walls, lots of structures. They were like the big king of the ancient Near East. And essentially in these two chapters, Isaiah says, don't worry because um, I'm going to destroy her speedily. That's verse 22 of 2 Nephi 23, their houses will be filled with doleful creatures and owls. And then obviously I have to say this because I'm a dragon fan. Verse 22, the last verse in Second Nephi 23. Wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses and dragons in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come. Her day shall not be prolonged for I will destroy her speedily. So the Lord says, I know they're big. Guys, it's okay. Like, Chaos is going to take over Babylon because Babylon is not my plan. And I love the imagery
0: here is this is the world. The world is big. They are powerful. Just hang on. Chapter 24 has what I think one of the most beautiful images of warning you'll ever find. Chapter 24 is kind of that same idea. Stay true in captivity because the Jews are going to go into Babylonia. They have to stay true in captivity. That's the overall big picture of in Isaiah's day, but watch this beautiful scene take place. And so verse five, the Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepters of the ruler. So again, it's that message that Babylon is going to fall and you're going to go home, but it's also Babylon is evil and it's Satan. Verse six, he who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke. He that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindereth. So we've shifted from an image of Babylon to an image of Lucifer himself. And I love that image in verse 6. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke. There comes a point in a fight that even the most hardened, cruel man will back away because the other person has had enough. But Satan never backs away. He will smite you with a continual stroke. Now, watch what happens as we go into hell with Lucifer. This is an absolute beautiful scene that you have to picture. He who smote the earth with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations is persecuted and none hindereth. And we're going to send Satan to hell. Verse 7, the whole earth is at rest, is quiet, and they break forth into singing, right? As soon as we send Lucifer into hell, the whole earth breaks forth. But follow with me into hell. So let's go ahead of him. Before Satan shows up, let's run into hell ahead of him. Verse 9, hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up all the dead for thee. In other words, let's run around. Satan's coming. Satan's coming. Lucifer's coming. And everyone is just stirred up and angry. Now, why do they want to greet him? Is this Jesus coming into his kingdom? Is this a conquering hero coming back to the people who adore him? Is this the Kansas City chiefs going back to Kansas City to their ticker tape parade? No, this is the prosecutor going to jail. This is the judge who sent them to jail, all of a sudden being sent to jail himself. So the reason they're moved from beneath to meet him at his coming is they hate him. They're angry at him. They want to destroy him. This is the man that is the reason I'm here. And so they're just waking each other up. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Let's destroy him. Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up all the dead, even the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones. And they all start speaking to each other. Now, they can't physically beat him up. So they're going to hurt him exactly in the way they know will hurt him. They're going to mock his pride. So they plan on it. As soon as he walks in, verse 10, they're going to say things like, Ha ha, art thou become weak as we... Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave. The noise of thy vials is not heard. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? They're going to mock him. You were the one that said you were going to be God, and here you are in hell. So they're planning all this on how the, can You can feel their venom towards him, right? You can feel how much they hate him, and they want to destroy him. And then he walks into hell. And this is one of the most beautiful scenes we can perceive. Feel the venom that they have towards him. Verse 16. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and shall consider thee and say, Him? That's Lucifer? That's the guy I followed? That's the guy I fell for? Him? They will narrowly look upon thee. This man? And now all of a sudden, you feel their venom shifting. They're no longer angry at him. They're angry at themselves.
1: You know what this reminds me of, Bryce? King Noah in the Book of Mormon. Yep. When they finally realize they've been duped by this guy, and he never had their best interest. They burn him. They burn him. But for the longest time, they think he's the greatest thing ever. They cheered him. And that's exactly, that's a beautiful image. Do
0: you remember when Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Lion and the Scarecrow, what they thought Oz was? This great, big, floating, powerful head. They were so terrified of him. They were willing to walk into the Wicked Witch's Palace for him. And yet, what does he turn out to be? an old man behind a curtain. And you can almost feel their wrath when they realize that. They're angry at themselves for being duped. How could I have fallen for that? And they're angry at themselves. I can't believe I let such an insignificant nothing convince me to go into danger. Now, do you understand what Isaiah is trying to say in this context of Babylon? the great he's trying to say that you know what all of satan's temptations all of them might appear to be this massive powerful floating head with fire and thunder but the reality is they are an old man behind a curtain who has no power to get you back to kansas And what you thought the temptation was, what you thought evil was going to do in your life, it doesn't. It doesn't make you happy. It's the morning after syndrome. When you wake up and realize it was all a facade.
1: What have I done?
0: What have I done? It wasn't worth it. And so here, as the Jews prepare to go into Babylon, don't be deceived by the deception. All of these temptations, it's not as powerful, it's not as rewarding as you think it is.
1: But it's loud right now. It certainly is. And he's going to take away all their glory. If you look at verse 22, it says, I'll rise up against them and I'm going to cut off from Babylon the name, the remnant, the son, the nephew, all of it, saith the Lord. A good package for this too is Isaiah 47 and Isaiah 52, 1 and 2, the great switch, the great exchange where Babylon in chapter 47 of Isaiah is kicked off the throne and she has to make bare the thigh and cover the lock and become a slave and Israel gets to come back onto the throne in Isaiah 52, 1 and 2. Um, this is the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord says, I want to bring my people out of obscurity and out of darkness. And like Bryce says, it's loud right now. I can't even tell you how many times I'll go on a social media, and it's like, man, is everybody against us? And so I look at it like, well, welcome to the club. This is, this is what it is. But the promise is, verse 32, the Lord has founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it. And so just hang on, keep going, stay true in captivity are the Jews in captivity? Well, yeah, they're in captivity for a long time until, uh, you know, they're saved by Cyrus. What about the Nephites? Are they in captivity? Yeah, for a long time. You've got Nephites in Gadian captivity. You've got uh, Mosiah 24, where, uh, you know, if you remember that story, where Alma and his people, they're in total captivity, and they cry out, and God doesn't deliver them, and so they cry out in their hearts, and they say, well, make us equal to the task, Lord. Everybody has captivities. I think, um, you know, I think sometimes of the financial difficulties that people have, or maybe they're in captivity with uh, other things. Maybe there's addictions, but whatever the captivity is that we have, the promise I think that Isaiah is trying to give us is that he's going to write this. It may not be immediately. But if we have trust in him, we'll see it in the end. I think these have perpetual relevance. This chapter, and by the way, I just got to say this about scholarship. There's a lot of scholarship out there that says, you know, a lot of the later stuff in Isaiah was written uh, later after the exile because Babylon wasn't a power. He's dealing with Babylon right here. These are the early chapters of Isaiah, which everybody's saying is the legitimate Isaiah, son of Amos 740 BC wrote. And he's talking about Babylon. And he's talking about, I mean, this is chapter 14 of Isaiah, where he says, yeah, Babylon's going to go down. So however you want to read it, um, I think it's beautiful. And I think Nephi at this time, this probably comforted him as he's thinking, how are my people going to survive? We're in this new land, and they, our kingdom's carved in half. And these guys want to kill us, and I'm going to trust God. I think this is me. I think Nephi reads this stuff on the brass plates, and he believes it. And he's like, we're going to be okay. Yeah. Make sure you
0: liken it. What is Babylon like? They conquered the Jews, a formidable foe. What is it like in your life? What is it like in the people you love? Make sure you like in Isaiah. It may seem a little overwhelming until you just read it slowly. What is this situation like? And you've got to picture it you got to see those types of things. And then if you spend a little bit of time and come to know the regions round about, what's the history, read a little bit about Hezekiah's stand, what happened when Hezekiah took his stand, you'll get a lot out of these chapters. Now let me just end with two more helps. So some of the helps we've given you is see it, liken it, No concerning the region's roundabout. If you'll go back to chapter 25, when we come out of these chapters of Isaiah, he says two things that I think are very significant. First of all, he says in verse 4 that Isaiah was plain unto all those who are filled with the spirit of prophecy. Read Isaiah and ask the Lord to help you. It becomes plain when the Spirit helps us. The Spirit will give you connections in Isaiah that you just will not get anywhere else. Read it with the Holy Ghost. And then in verse 8, he throws one more idea in. I know that they shall be of great worth, meaning the words of Isaiah, unto them in the last days. For in that day shall they understand them. And I ask, why is it that the latter-day saints would understand Isaiah better than anyone else? And clearly, we can see fulfillment in the prophecies that have already come to pass. But what advantage do we have in the latter days? It seems to me he's saying, take advantage of modern scriptures, modern prophets, and modern scholarship. Because in the latter days, you will have assets and information that very few people will have. So get on the internet. Do a little searching when something comes up that maybe you don't understand. Use modern scriptures. Look in the Book of Mormon. Look in the Doctrine and Covenants. Find it somewhere else, and it'll help you understand. So those are just some extra helps. Don't just rush over it. Don't skip it. Read it slowly. Liken it. See it know somewhat a little bit about the region's roundabout, get the Holy Ghost, spend some time with modern tools. And I think you'll get a lot more out of Isaiah
1: than you realize. So in the 25th chapter, Isaiah is done. And Nephi says, I'm so glad that I've talked about these things. And this is all going to be to Nephi wrapped up in what I've counted, like 12 predictions that he makes in this chapter. And, I'll post these in the show notes because of time, but essentially it all comes back to God's going to bring him home. But Nephi tells the story of the Jews over thousands of years from his time and into the future and in our time, and his overall prophecy is that things are going to be put back. And that the words that Nephi is writing down, he sees in vision that they're going to come out, and that this is going to be made known to people, and that people will know Jesus. And so if you go just to the end of Second Nephi 25, he talks a lot about Christ and why why he keeps the law, but then he says at the in verse 28, he says, right about the second or third line, he says, I've spoken plainly to you that you cannot misunderstand, and the words which I have spoken shall stand as a testimony." A little bit later he says, for the right way is to believe in Christ and deny him not. And so to Nephi, everything is about Christ, everything takes us home to Christ. But he uses the story of the, the Jewish people, and the destruction of the temple, and then the rebuilding of the temple, the second temple period, and then the destruction again, and the apostasy, and he begs them not to look anymore for a Messiah. And he uses the story of this people to teach about the redemptive Jesus. And that's my testimony, is that we all come from somewhere. And our seed is going somewhere. Like we're having children. We've, we were children. We came from our parents. And the way I read Nephi is he sees Jesus with his hands extended and he has great love for all these children. And he knows that things are not going to always go perfect. I mean, that's kind of their story. And it's rife with tragedy, but it's also filled with beauty. And that's my testimony is that the human experience, even though it's messy, it's beautiful, And the Savior, because of who he is, is going to pick us up. And Nephi, you can just feel it in his bones. He's just like, I believe in Jesus, and I believe if we'll just listen to him. I love where he says in the middle of verse 20, he says, none other name under heaven is going to save us. And so that's kind of how I would close 2 Nephi 25.
0: And I love at the very end of verse 23, it's after grace that we're saved, after all that we can do. So do as much as you can. I mean, sometimes we err on the, I think I have to do more than I am. Sometimes I have to do more than I think I'm doing. But there's this beautiful balance that says, look, you're going to be saved by grace after all you can do. Jesus is going to come and he's going to pick it up. Now do all that you can do, but trust that the Savior's going to be there in the end and he'll pick it up.
1: Yeah. Okay. So with that, um, thanks for listening. If you've, if you had endured all the way, way to go. Like you've done Isaiah. So you get a gold ribbon uh, or a gold star or a blue ribbon. I don't even know what color, but anyway, thank you for listening. If you feel like this has been helpful to you, uh, share it in your circle of influence. Jesus is the way back. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study, and we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us, and make it a great week.
0: Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.